Uh-oh. All right. Thank you, stagehand. Nice work. Well, hello. It's great to see everybody this morning. Beautiful day. Welcome to worship at PBC. My name is Paul. If I have not met you, I would love to do so. I love meeting new people. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really a privilege to be worshiping together. This morning, I brought some show and tell. So we're going to be unveiling these a little bit throughout the sermon, but we're talking about stuff during the season of Advent, so we have some stuff here. Uh, My first show and tell is this. This is a loaf of bread, right? This is where you nod your head and say yes. Um, Nothing special. If you put this down in uh, my family of seven, it'd be gone in about seven seconds. Um, But what's special about this particular loaf of bread is that I made it. I know, right? Okay, there you go. A little humble brag. Um, I measured out the flour. I combined it with water and salt. I mixed it. I stretched and folded. I, I had nurtured a sourdough starter for over a year before using it in this bread. I, I put it in the oven and timed it perfectly and came out. And it's, you know, not too bad, right? So uh, I made this bread. You could say that this is the work of my hands. As I said during Advent, we are thinking about how the Christmas story, this, um, this idea that God became human, gives new meaning to the physical stuff of the world. It gives some spiritual significance to the stuff in our lives. And so we've called this series The Things of Verse to think about how that works in a bunch of different categories. Last week, we talked about the place we find ourselves. And for the next two weeks, we're going to think about the stuff that we have. Uh, two weeks, are, uh, next week, Dan Westman's going to teach on simplicity, thinking about having less stuff. And this week, we're going to talk about generosity. We're going to try to understand how giving away our stuff becomes an act of worship. We say this regularly at PBC. Rolanda mentioned this a few minutes ago, that giving is an act of worship. So I want to unpack that idea this morning and really try to understand the connection between those two ideas. See, we need this reminder because we don't give stuff. We give money when we give. And money is this very convenient tool that we've created to take the place of stuff to to carry the value of our things. But money itself has no value. It's a piece of paper or a coin, or for most of us, it's just a number on a screen. And so what's the connection then between how we give our stuff? See, this wasn't the case for most of the world. Uh, In the Bible times, they lived in what we would call an agrarian society. So they worked the ground, they raised animals, and all the things in their life would have been stuff that they either made or they knew the person who had made it. The stuff in their lives was, was much more meaningful, you might say, to them. And yet today, we live in an industrial society where a lot of us don't make stuff And the stuff we have, mostly we didn't make, and we don't know the people who did make it. We do things that are valuable. We get compensated with money, and then we use that money to buy stuff. Uh, William Cavanaugh said, we used to 
make things, now we buy things. It's kind of how society has changed. So if I were to take this bread and come up to you and say, um, I made this loaf of bread for you. I want you to have it. You'd be grateful, right? I mean, that's kind of special. I put my time into this. But if I were to come up to you and say, you know, I really want you to have some bread. Here's $5. There's a Safeway right down Middlefield. Go buy some bread. That'd be a little bit less meaningful. Agreed? And yet when we give, that's what we do. We give money we don't give stuff. So we want to think about how the work of our hands, the stuff that we do, somehow becomes worship. When I give money, I don't even give physical money anymore. I, I transfer something somehow through some digital network where money gets transferred. And so I sit there and I, I click a button and something happens, and money moves from one place to another. And then we come up here Sunday mornings, and we tell you, your giving is an act of worship. When you click that button, that's worship. And you think, I click a lot of buttons all week. What makes that button click worship when all the other button clicks of my life are not worship? How does that even work? And for some of us, it's even worse because we don't even click a button. We clicked a button a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago to set up some auto pay and something happens at some point somewhere in the world and money goes from one place to another. We don't even know when it happens. So you can see that we have some challenges in really relating in our experience to the idea that giving is an act of worship. We want to unpack that idea then. And to do that, we're going to talk about three pretty simple ideas. We'll pull two ideas from the Old Testament, and we'll think about how God designed giving to relate to our worshiping lives. And then we'll go to the New Testament and the early church and think about how those things played forward and then try to wrap it all up and understand what it means for us today. Well, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we've been in a series on the book of Exodus for most of the fall. And we've seen God's people in the land of Egypt where they have been slaves. We've seen how their spirit was broken because of the harsh treatment of their slave masters. We've seen how they had no control over their work and they were burdened by their life. But then, most recently, we read how God saved them from a life of freedom and is in the process of bringing them into the promised land. Well, as God does that, he gives his people some instructions so that they know how to live as free people in their own land. We're going to pick up with that part of the story in January, but today we want to look at a little piece of that. It's actually from a later book in the book of Deuteronomy, but these are some of the instructions that God gives his people. Listen to Deuteronomy 26. Here's verses 1 to 2. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all of the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket 
And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. That would have been eventually the site of the temple. And these are instructions that God gives his people for when they're in the land to to take what we would call their first fruits and to give it to God at the temple. Now remember that when they received this instruction, they had just stopped being slaves in Egypt. They had just recently been freed. And as slaves, they worked hard under somebody else's mandate. Somebody else decided what they should do and how hard they needed to work. And then when they were done with their work, whatever they had produced was taken from them. This is the injustice of slavery. You have no autonomy over the work itself, and you don't get to keep the produce from your efforts. But God had recently freed them. He take them out of Egypt. And in doing that, he was going to transform their working lives so that they could work as free people on land that they owned and occupied. How many of you remember your first job? Some of you, yeah? My first job was selling rollerblades in a sporting goods store. So I got really good at sounding like I knew what I was talking about with the various features and benefits of different rollerblades. But I remember this was uh, maybe some late high school for me. And I remember when I started working, how magical it was. You go to this place and you do some things for a few hours and then every two weeks, money goes into your bank account. You're making money. And it was like, this is incredible. Now I have money. I can spend it however I want. All I had to do was go to this place and talk about rollerblades and then they gave me money for doing that. It was incredible. And you might think that's a little bit of what the Israelites would have felt when they got in their own land, after being slaves in Egypt where they had no control over their work, they had no benefit from their work, now they worked their land and they ate the produce of their hard work. But for me, over time, selling rollerblades became a little less exciting. What started out as fun and and thrilling and joyful became burdensome and boring and, and I had to go to work. And this, uh, the, the actual numbers didn't change, but it seemed like my paycheck was getting smaller. It seemed like what used to feel like magic money appearing in my account suddenly didn't feel like enough. Suddenly I wanted more. Work was hard, and it didn't pay as much as I wanted it to. And you might imagine for the Israelites that they felt something similarly. They got in their land and they were excited about working the ground and then over time they realized, hey, this is hard work and the ground doesn't always give us as much as we want. And you start to get in this mindset of there's never enough and my hard work doesn't pay off like I thought it would. What do you do then? How does God teach you to remember that life now, that the the benefit of hard work is so much better than when you were slaves in Egypt. What could God do to help you realize that you always have enough? 
Well, it's really simple. He can tell you to give some of it away. If you feel like you don't have enough, if you feel like there's never enough to go around, God says, give it away. Listen to how scholar Michael Rhodes puts it. Israel's establishment in the land tempted them to return to an economy of hoarding and scarcity. This is what life would have been like as a slave. But the commands for offering reaffirms that abundance comes to humanity as sheer gift and invites the Israelites to participate in the economic sharing of this gift. See, giving stuff away reminds the people of God that they have enough. So let's think a bit about how this might have worked. We actually know some of how life in ancient Israel would have worked because we've discovered, archaeologists have discovered a, a calendar that describes the yearly cycle of life. This is called the Gezer calendar. It was discovered about the 10th century BC. And it's this tablet that, that shows a, a picture of the details of life in Israel. One more interesting thing about this particular tablet is that it's signed by the name Abijah. You can see that in the lower left-hand corner, which is the earliest by about a millennium of the name of Yahweh found outside the Bible. So this particular stone was found. It dates from the 10th century BC, and uh, most of you are probably fine, but for those of you whose Phoenician is a little rusty, let's look at a translation of what this stone reads. It says, two months gathering, two months planting, two months late sowing, one month cutting flax, one month reaping barley, one month reaping and measuring grain, two months pruning, one month summer fruit. This is the calendar for the life of Israel. This is how life worked year after year in 10th century Israel. So how would it have felt then to give away the first fruits of the produce of your effort. Think about these two seasons, two months planting, that would have started around now, maybe mid-November, late November, two months planting, and then two months late sowing. So about four months, you're sowing seeds and planting, which means nothing is harvested, which means you're eating preserved food, dried food, maybe salted meat or salted fish, um, and you're waiting for the harvest, four months of eating old food, and then the first harvest comes. You reap some of the work of your hands, fresh food. And what do you do with that first batch of food? You give it away. Four months of waiting for fresh food, and the first chance you have to eat it, you give it away. Why would God do this? Why would God ask his people that? Well, think about what they're experiencing year after year of doing this. In that hunger and that desire, they give away the first fruits, but what happens? More comes. The rest of the harvest comes in. And year by year, month by month, season by season, they learn that there is enough. That even when you give away the first fruits, more comes. They learn by doing that they live in a kingdom of plenty. And so when we give, when we are generous with our stuff, 
we are reminding ourselves that there is enough. We can live in God's kingdom of plenty. See, we're not slaves. We don't suffer under the economic injustice of slavery. We have freedom in our work. We get to enjoy the benefit of our labor. And yet, many of us are tempted to think that our jobs are burdensome and tiring and there's never enough. And it feels like slavery. We are tempted to return to the economy of hoarding and scarcity. If you think you won't have enough, your temptation is to protect it, to guard it, to be careful with it. But God says the way to break that temptation is to give it away. And remember that you live in his kingdom of plenty. It's the first big idea. That generosity has this incredible effect on us to remind us of the plenty that God has. Now, let's go back to this loaf of bread for a minute. I told you earlier that I made this bread. That's not entirely true. I baked this bread. I assembled the dough, but I didn't grow the wheat. I had nothing to do with milling that wheat into flour. I um, didn't create yeast. I have no idea how yeast actually works, except that bacteria are eating something and it sounds gross, so I don't really want to think about it. I have no control over whatever chemical processes are at work where when you combine water and flour, uh, gluten strands form and then the yeast somehow gets in there and expands that. I put this dough in an oven, but while the dough is in the oven, I have no idea what was actually happening to turn a wet lump of dough into airy, light bread. So in some ways, this bread is the work of my hands, but really it's the result of processes that are completely out of my control over which I have no understanding of. Now farmers, people who work the ground are very familiar with this idea. Because when you work the ground, you work very, very hard. And you plant and you sow and you protect and you prepare, but then you know that nothing is gonna grow apart from rain and sun. And any number of terrible things could happen that would completely invalidate all of your hard work. One drought, one flood, one fire, one swarm of locusts. And so when you actually produce something, you know that you worked hard for that, but something else happened as well. So think about your own jobs. Think about the work that you do, whether that's schoolwork or professional work or volunteer, maybe you're retired, maybe you're raising kids. Think about whatever occupies your time. And isn't it the same? You work hard at what you want to do, but something else happens. Your work alone is never sufficient to accomplish what you hope to accomplish by it. And so the work that we do is, on one hand, the work of our hands, but it is also the work of God. Only the most arrogant among us would claim that everything I have produced, all that I have done is entirely up to me. 
I'm responsible for all of it. I mean, the air I breathe, the food I eat, the world I live in, I had nothing to do with any of that. And yet, just like before, we are tempted in our world through our efforts to forget that last part, to forget that God had something to do, that, that there are forces outside of our control. We are tempted to believe that it's our effort, that it's our ingenuity, that it's my hard work, that I made this bread and it is the work of my hands. So what could God do to help us, to help his people remember that he's got a big part in anything we do? Well, this is what he does. He uh, helps us to remember through this effort of giving. Listen what happens. We, we bring the first fruits to God, the first of our labor, but, but listen to what happens of it. This is Leviticus 2, verses 14 to 16. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. So God says, partly to help us remember his part in our work, he says, go ahead and give it to the priest and the priest is going to burn it up. Now, I'm going to pretend like I'm a uh, first century priest here and we're going to try and do a little burnt offering. All right? Now, I wanted to do this, and so early this week, I decided to go ahead and um, try this. So I, I took some oil and some flour, and I put it in a bowl, and I dropped a match in it, and I thought it would just go up in flames. Turns out it doesn't. Uh, you couldn't light it. I, I can't light oil and flour. And nothing happened. So I did some research, and I found a lot of things online telling me what the burnt offering meant. But nobody told me what it looked like. Nobody told me what it was actually like in its experience. So I did some more research and I realized that what would happen is that the priest would have had kind of a charcoal fire. They would have had this fire that was going most of the time. On that charcoal fire, they would have built, uh, they would have burnt animals, they would have burnt the grain offering, all sorts of things. So they would have had this charcoal going and ours is lit now, so we're gonna let it get warm. And then what would happen is that people would come to the temple and they would, they would bring the work of their hands. So they would bring um, their flour and their oil. And what they would do is they would give the priest some of the work of their hands. They would give some flour. This is flour that they would have grown, wheat that they would have milled into flour. And then they would have combined that with probably olive oil. This could have been olive oil that they grew from their olive trees, or it could have been um, olive oil from the temple that the priests used. So this would have been the work of their hands, and then the priest would combine that with some frankincense. So we put a little frankincense in here, and uh, they would have brought, you may have noticed, all of this offering, this, this offering of grain, and then they were said to take some of it. 
some of that offering would be taken aside to be given as a burnt offering. They called it the memorial portion. So the priest would mix this, the flour and the oil and the frankincense, and then the priest would take this part of the offering and put it on the charcoal. And what would happen then is that you would watch as the work of your hands literally went up in smoke. The, uh, the scriptures call this a pleasing aroma to the Lord, the memorial portion. And um, it said that this smell is something that would please God. But I'm thinking, I worked hard to make that flower. And now I watch it burn. But I don't just watch it, I actually smell it as well. Maybe you smelled it as you walked in here this morning from the, the first service. But this is the smell of frankincense mixed with flour and oil. And what I think is cool about this is that a lot of things have changed in 3,000 years, but flour hasn't changed much, olive oil hasn't changed much, and frankincense hasn't changed much. So this smell that we're smelling this morning is the same smell they would have smelt 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. It hasn't changed. The smell of flour mixed with oil mixed with frankincense. So I want you to imagine that when we were mixing this together, that, that this is the work of your hands. I want you to think about what you do with your life, the work that you produce. And I want you to imagine bringing that to God and some of it being taken away. And I want you to imagine that on this charcoal right here is the work of your hands. Maybe it's computer code. Maybe it's children you're raising. Maybe it's academics. And it's brought to God, and it's burned up. The word used for, for burn in the, in the Hebrew actually means ascend. So you actually get to watch your work ascend to God as an offering. And when you see this, what you are reminded of is that that work that you brought to God is not only your work. It is also the work of God that it belongs to God as much as it belongs to you. And as you watch it ascend to God, you are reminded of his part in your work. You are corrected. You are disabused of the notion that anything you do comes entirely from you, that God has a part in all of it. And so when we give in this way, we give to depend on God. We give to be reminded of our dependence of God to be corrected from the idea that we have done anything of our own accord. And it's not just a sermon you hear that tells you that, hey, don't forget, depend on God. It's a thing you see, and it's a smell you experience so that you are shaped in that knowledge that all of your life, anything good that you have done comes from the work of God. Now, I'd love to keep this going, but we're a little unsure about the uh, smoke alarm situation in this room. So we're going to uh, stop our work from ascending to God now.
but you get the idea. <laughs> All right, so we've seen two ideas. I said there were three. The, the first idea is that our, our generosity reminds us of God's kingdom of plenty. The second idea is that our generosity reminds us that our work is always mixed with God's work. For our third idea, we want to jump to the New Testament, and we want to think about how the New Testament differs. See, in the Old Testament, there were very uh, specific instructions about how much to give, but when we get to the New Testament, it's far more general. We get a general instruction that encourages generosity. So here's 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 8. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, you might recognize some of the themes we've already been talking about, the themes of freedom. You don't give under compulsion. It's not a life of slavery, but you give freely. Themes of, of abundance. We hear about God's abundant grace and our abounding in every good work. We might think about themes of dependence, where we hear how God provides for our needs. But what we know is that the early church, as they practiced generosity, carried forward some of the ideas from the Old Testament where they would actually bring forward their stuff to the church. We know that from a guy named Hippolytus. He was a bishop in the third century. And we've discovered an early instruction for worship from him. This was written about 215 AD. So listen to what he told his congregation to do. He said, Whoever has the first fruits of the earth is to bring them to the church, the first of their floors and the first of their presses, oil, honey, milk, wool, and the first of the produce of the work of their hands. All this they are to bring to the bishop and the first of their trees. So same idea. In the early church, at least in the third century, we see that people come bringing the first product of the work of their hands to the church. And you can imagine the abundance of stuff that people had made, all of the different things that different people were engaged in doing, they brought the produce of that to the church. So next week, we want to invite you to bring some computer code and some legal documents, uh, maybe a fixed car if you're a mechanic. Bring that and we'll just pile it all right here. Does that sound good? Not really, right? It doesn't really work for us to bring the stuff of our hands. But in the early church, that's the way they did it. Now, here's a mosaic uh, from the 4th century depicting a woman bringing the work of her hands to the church. You might notice that she's bringing grapes and wheat. Now, this woman probably had a small vineyard. That would have been very common, and a small field where she grew wheat. And so she is bringing the first of her produce to the church. And I want us to think about her. She brings her wheat and her grapes. What might the church do with wheat and grapes? Well, maybe they'd make bread and wine. So now we have some bread and wine, and the church would then use those 
weekly to serve communion to the community. So this woman works in the ground, makes something, brings the first of her produce to the church as grapes and wheat. The church makes them into bread and wine, which then is transformed into the body and blood of Jesus, which allows for the church to worship God, putting his glory on full display, and nourishes and empowers the members of the church to go out into the community and do the work of God in the world. So her stuff, the work of her hands, becomes worship, which fuels the church and nourishes them to go out and do the work of God, which results in stuff, which gets brought to the church, which becomes worship, which nourishes the people to go out into the world and do the work of God, which becomes stuff, which gets brought to the church and over and over again. And so you see how this cycle of the offering of the work of our hands actually becomes the stuff of worship which draws us together and nourishes us to go out and do the work of God in the world. Remember what the Apostle Paul said. He said that God abounds all grace to us so that we can go abound in every good work. Well, how does God abound in grace to us? Partially, it's through each other. It's through us offering our gifts to each other in this community so that God's grace is abundant in our lives, which lets us go out and do abundantly God's good work in the world. This is how our giving, when we give stuff, gets caught up into the story of Christ in the world and gets transformed into this spiritual mystery of God's purposes for his place. When we are generous, that is an act of worship. When we worship, we do so in generosity. Those things are woven together. We worship generously. And so we've seen these three powerful ideas. On one hand, when we give generously, doing that reminds us that we live in a kingdom of plenty. Giving reminds us that we have enough. We've also seen that when we worship generously, that it helps us to recognize that the stuff we do comes from God as much as it comes from our own efforts. Our giving reminds us of our dependence on God. And then finally, we've seen how when we bring our stuff to worship, it gets transformed into the elements of worship that empowers us to go out in the world and do God's work. These glorious, spiritual, mystic themes. And we tell you when you click that button, that's what's happening. <laughs> how is that possible? And yet this is how the spiritual life works. It's simple actions with everyday things where the big story of God is played out in our lives. It's a bite of bread and a drop of juice. It's one kind word to another. It's a, a dollar in an offering basket. And God's plans are set loose. And we feel that, don't you? I mean, I have my bank set to give on auto pay. And, and every month I, I wake up at like two in the morning one day and I think, the Spirit of God has moved. 
I've been reminded of God's plenty. Something has happened. Some bank somewhere has made a transaction. And we feel it, right? Don't you have that sense? No, I don't either. Dieter's like, "Uh uh-uh. How do we connect then with that? How do we connect the giving that we do that's done digitally or electronically or automatically or through a click of a button? How do we connect that act with the themes we've talked about this morning? Well, I'd like to leave that question for you to wrestle with, with the Spirit to say, maybe there's something you can do, some act you can take that that helps you to remember all of those themes. As I've said, my my giving happens automatically, so I started thinking, I'm going to use text to give on a Sunday morning, just, just, just to give a little bit of money, just, you know, leave my regular giving aside, but just give a little extra, and then I'm doing something. I'm taking an action that at least reminds me of all that's happening on a spiritual plane. Maybe for you it's writing a check or dropping something in the, in the box or, or just taking some time to reflect on what's happening. But the goal here is try to find a way to connect our generosity with our worship. Well, we've talked about a lot of things this morning. We've uh, burned some things and we started off thinking about this bread And we've seen how this bread is the work of my hands, but it's also the work of God. And we've seen how if I'm worried that this bread is not enough for me, I could give some of it away as a way of reminding me that there is plenty. How if I were to watch this bread get burned up, it would help me to realize that God's work went into this bread. And how this bread can be transformed into the body of Christ. So that worship happens and the people of God are empowered to do the work of God. God helps us by combating these three temptations. The the temptation to think there's never enough. The temptation to think that all that I do is my work. And the temptation to think that my work doesn't have meaning. That there's no connection. And yet through our generosity we experience plenty, dependence, and worship. This is what happens, by the way, every week, all the time, here at PBC and, and in every church all around the world. It is our offering, it is our gifts that are transformed into worship. Your gifts bought these candles. Your gifts paid for this light and this mic stand, my favorite, pastoral salaries. Your gifts are transformed into the stuff of worship so that the glory of God is put on display as we form a community around Christ and we are empowered to be sent out to do his work in the world. This is always happening. This is the way generosity works. But this morning we wanted to make it a little bit clearer, the connection between the work of our hands and the work of God. So as we celebrate communion this morning, I asked a bunch of our PBC bakers to bake us bread. So the bread this morning is all the work of our hands as a community. Somebody has made this bread, has mixed the flour and the water and shaped it and prepared it, has brought their offering here to nourish you with the body and blood of Christ so that you experience worship and are empowered to go out into the world to do his work. So we're going to move into a time of communion now. 
the middle aisle will be dismissed by Rose from the ushers. Um, outside, we'll have ushers as well. The sides, you guys can come up to the side tables as you please. Uh, this bread is not gluten-free, so if you require gluten-free, you can use a little single-serve cups there as an alternative. But let's worship God through this celebration and be empowered to do his work. Let me pray for us. Well, Father God, we're so grateful for the stuff of this world, for the things of our life that we live in these physical bodies and experience the world as we do. And we're grateful for the meaning that you give us as we work and offer ourselves and celebrate and worship and go out. So we pray for this time that you would be present in it, that we would be aware of your presence and that we would recognize how the work of our hands becomes transformed into worship through the act of generosity. Nourish us to go out into the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.